After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immor immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sin, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. You may be seated. Thank you, Lauren. How are we doing this morning? Great. That was a great greet time. Well done. Uh, I met a guy after first service. He said, you want to hear a cool story? I, uh, however many years ago, I was at a Calvary church in Tempe, Arizona, a meet and greet. I meet this cute girl, Kimberly. Next week, next Sunday, I'm in San Diego for something, and I'm at another Calvary church in San Diego, and I meet this cute girl, Kimberly, and that is now his wife for the last 30 years. So some of you just shook hands <laughs> with just a stranger you'll forget after this, and maybe, just maybe, that's the one. That's the one. So we get to dive into Revelation. If you're new here, if you're a guest, just know this is a crazy book. This church is very hospitable, very loving, very sweet, but we take God very serious. And this book is one of his more serious gifts to us as his church. He does not pull punches. It is a graphic uh, image of the world and the unseen world and the beginning and the end and what's going to happen when all things are said and done. But one secret thing that Revelation is trying to do is make us think about how we are currently changing in ways we don't even realize. So my wife and I are in the middle of looking for shows. We kind of always, at, if we ever go on a double date or s around anyone else, we're like, hey, what shows are you into? Because we can't currently find one. I have a show, but my wife's not about it because it's too intense. So I'm currently watching Better Call Saul because multiple people told me it's the best top three show of all time. I'm like, okay. So Better Call, if you don't know, Better Call Saul is the prequel to Breaking Bad. I've never seen Breaking Bad. What's interesting with Better Call Saul is the main character, Jimmy McGill, I'm season two or three now. He's still Jimmy McGill. And I'm not a super smart guy, but I'm connecting some dots. And I'm assuming at some point, old Jimmy McGill becomes Saul. And then Saul runs into Breaking Bad. What Better Call Saul is about is the transformation of Jimmy McGill into something different. And I'm in the middle of watching him transform through tiny little decisions here and there in his practice as a lawyer in his relationship to his family, specifically his brother, and all the ways he's sort of cutting corners and ways he's changing right before our very eyes. And I just have a sense of where this is headed. Revelation is way less nuanced. It's not walking us through in some sort of Socratic method asking, hey, how do you think you've changed in the past year? Here's the reality. We're all changing. Xavier's going to do a class called Journey Class, which is an introduction to our spiritual journey. And one of his main points is 10 years ago, you were somebody different than you are now. Age alone changes you. And then throw in all the other factors. We're all changing. The Christian question is, am I changing for good? The revelation way to ask it is, am I becoming more like a citizen of Babylon? Or am I becoming more and more like a citizen of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, where Jesus is king? That's the question at play in this passage. So just so you know, just to get your bearings, Revelation 17 18 and the beginning of 19, I'm going to give us a view of. I'm not going to dive into every word. Again, we're trying to see the forest more than we're trying to focus on an individual tree. But here's the big idea. Babylon is very shiny. 
so be on guard. Babylon is very, very shiny, so be on guard. And here's how it's going to break down if you're a note taker. And if you're a preacher, you use the same letter. That's just what you do. It's just kind of built into the reality. So Revelation 17, John, the Apostle John, is going to give us something to look at, a very graphic image. Revelation 18, when you turn the page, is going to give us something to listen to. It's the only command in this whole section. And Revelation 19 is going to give us something to long for Christians. But here's the reality of this message. You could walk in here, be entertained, be taught something, and leave here totally the same person with no change whatsoever. That's not God's hope for you. That's not my hope for you. So I want to pause and just give you a second And if you're willing, in your own way, pray to God and ask him to change you by his spirit in this message. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, ask him to change us. Holy Spirit, move, change us. Take this very real, graphic book that's been given to us. And take it out of the clouds and bring it down into our hearts and change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first up, so something to look at. So if you're tracking Revelation 17, 18, 19. Revelation 17 is where we're going to start. So turn there, and then I want you to look at this screen. Here's an here's a image of something like what we're about to walk into. So it's political season. It's starting to have the debates. We just had a Republican debate. I saw the tail end of it. It's the first thing I really paid attention to. But this is political satire. This is all over. If you're political, you've seen something like this. But this is a way to have an image without any words involved that paints a picture that all of us are very aware of. And some of you are like, I don't get it. Well, good for you. You're ignorantly blissful in this. That says something to us. Revelation 17 is sort of the same thing. It's a graphic picture that John sees by the Holy Spirit, and then he writes down what he sees. What we're about to look at is the picture that God wants us to see regarding Babylon. So let's read together. Slow through Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you. The great judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So already we've got this image of this woman sitting, kind of straddling earth, and all the kings have become drunk with her. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous blasphemous names. So the animal, the beast, is covered in names. That animal had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. That's king and queen colors. Adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And then on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Pause right there. That right there is an image. So it's this woman sitting on this beast, adorned beautifully, a big golden cup 
not full of red wine, but full of the blood. You could picture the blood spilling out of the martyrs, those who stood up for Jesus even when it cost them their life. And she's riding this giant beast, and this is the image we have. That's graphic. And it's also supposed to spin us back a few chapters to compare the last time a woman was here. Last time it was this pregnant woman, and the dragon was chasing her. And the pregnant woman pictured was a picture of God's people in this birth, this Messiah character born of this woman who's being chased all along by this dragon. Now we're looking at Babylon's version, and now it's flipped, and now the woman is riding the beast, straddling the earth, holding her cup of the blood of Christians who died. You would think... You see that, and you're disgusted, you're appalled, your moral senses kick in, and you say, "Ah." but John saw this firsthand, and what's his response? Verse 6, he sees this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled greatly, and the angel said to me, why do you marvel? Pause right there. That's an image right there. Something so graphic, so disgusting, so intense. And the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, who's been given this gift of this image, is looking at her, and he's marveling. It's like my kids, every time it's chore time, and there's a commercial on TV, it's like, I've never thought of buying progressive car insurance. (laughs) This is great. He's marveling. At this, which is disgusting, deplorable, sinful, evil, and he's, it's God's way to say, like, Babylon doesn't present itself with death and destruction and blood. He presents himself, she presents himself with a fruit from a tree and knowledge to be gained if you just take and eat. That's the first image of evil in the Bible. And now we get to this, and it's a woman riding a beast, sipping the blood of the saints. But she just is so easy to look at, and you marvel. That's Babylon. Who specifically is Babylon, according to the the author here? Go to the end of chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 18. And the woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It is Babylon. So just a historical reminder, this, book, this letter specifically was written first century to modern-day Turkey churches. There were seven of them that got passed around. Was this in reference to what they were experiencing? Yes. So when they hear Babylon, their brain kicks in and they think Rome, the emperor. Is it still applicable today? Yes. That's why Babylon was used. It's a thematic way to talk about evil, the evil of society, of political corruption, of religious corruption, of sexual, all the corruption in the world. It's a way to say, this is what we're talking about. So as we read it now, and we read Babylon, that great prostitute in the sky, does it apply here? Yes. The question is, is it like a future reality that we're going to walk into? Yes, that's part of it. But currently, this is at play right now. So are you calling America evil? I didn't say that. I just said the power that is at play in the prostitute that John is seeing is always at play in human history until it gets destroyed once and for all. Now, the question is, what do we do with this image? Here's what the angel would say. This takes us to our next point, is that he wants us to listen to something. So go to Revelation 18, what Lauren read for us, and this is the only command given to us as Christians in this section. Revelation 18, verse 1 through 5. 
And after this, I saw another angel coming down. So he just saw the woman having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So this angel shows up and calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. I skipped the bird part, but they're, undete- they're unclean as well. Verse 3, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of luxurious living. What's the so what? Then another voice from heaven, another angel says this. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What is the angel saying? In one sense, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Past tense, done deal, Babylon is falling. The evil of this world is falling. In a present tense, present tense verb, verse 4, come out of her. For that great city has sins as high as the sky. The city's fallen, but Christians come out of her. And then all throughout chapter 18 and 19, John's going to go back and forth between past verbs, present verbs, future verbs. So it's a way to say, like, this is always applicable. But what we see here is this future reality, Babylon is coming down in the present day. How do we respond? Get out while you still can. Like Christmas Carol, it's about to be Christmas season. Everybody knows the Christmas Carol story. How does Scrooge... Get changed. He sees three ghosts. Ghosts of the past, ghosts of the present, ghosts of the future. Ghosts of the past takes him, shows him happier times. Oh, I used to enjoy Christmas. I used to not be such a Scrooge. Okay. Changes him a little bit. Ghosts of the present. Now he goes around and sees the reality of people around him that have him less fortunate, and he changes a little bit more. But what's the nail in the coffin, the thing that makes Scrooge change once and for all? Ghosts of the future. He goes to his grave. And he realized he dies a wretched, lonely, greedy, selfish man that the whole world forgets. And he's stuck there with the reality. My life has fallen. What do I do with this? And here's what he says. Here's what he tells the angel. Why do you show me this? If I'm past all hope, assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by living an altered life. I see the future. But please promise me that what I see will affect me in the present, and then I will go back and live an altered life. What's that called? That's called repentance in the Christian life. So Babylon has fallen, but God in his wisdom and love wants us to live an altered life. Specifically, what though? Come out of her. And this is going to sound like redundant, but it's what Babylon... It's being talked about in here. It's what Revelation talks about. It's what the New Testament talks about. It's what has affected us from the beginning. Sex, power, and money. What do we come out of? We run from her sexual immorality. We run from her misuse of power. And we run from money and the misuse of money. So here's where, go back to verse 3. I want to show you where I pulled those out of. Here's how Babylon is described. 18 verse 3. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Sexual immorality, the kings, those in power of the earth have corrupted this. And the merchants, buyers, sellers, people participating in economy 
come out of her, come out of her, come out of Babylon. So I'm going to walk through and just give some pastoral thoughts and words from the book here. But here's the first thing we're told to come out of. Run from her sexual immorality. So all throughout Revelation in the Bible, sexual immorality is referenced into two things. One, actual acts of sexual immorality. The sort of catch-all term in the Greek is porneia. Flee from all porneia. That's where we get pornography. Run from that. So actual sexual sin. And the other way is the adultery we've committed against God, the faithful spouse, sexually immoral towards him. But Revelation is talking about both, but it's also really talking about actual sexual immorality in our life. So here's what we're called to, Christians. You live in Babylon where the sexual ethic is off. From a little bit to a lot. You're told to come out of that life and live a life like you're in New Jerusalem. How do you do that? Here's what I... This could be a sermon. This could be a book. This could be an encyclopedia. Sexual sin, sexual history, sexual discipleship is one of the main ways Christians are going to be discipled into the way of the world or in the way of Christ in this day and moment. I just want to give us some framing to think about this. My friend Scott Benyon, he goes to this church. He's also working on a doctorate in the area of faith and sexuality. Interesting. But his framework is this. The world offers this, a radical yes to sex. How does the culture view sex? Yes. To what? Anything. What do you want? It's yours. Genders including that, sexualizing, radical yes. He says the church historically, especially in our context, modern America, has offered a radical no. He calls it the purity culture or churches where it's like, no, well, what is sex? We don't talk about that. Radical yes is what the culture offers. Oftentimes in church you come in and it's a radical no. So what am I supposed to do with this? Radical yes, radical no. I think the Bible offers us a restricted yes that we're supposed to pursue. So I'm listening to this mini-series on AI, and this guy's talking about how AI is going to either make the world a lot better or we're all screwed. I don't know. Time will tell. Let me know if you know before I do. But he said, I've read these books to sort of get me in this dystopian so the like, books you read in middle school, high school that I've, I've forgotten. 1984 is a reference all the time. Brave New World is another one. And then one of the mathematicians he interviewed, John Lennox, wrote this one called 2084, and it's about how AI changes society. So I'm reading. I just started Brave New World. It's good, but it's sad. It's like not the world I want to be a part of. But it describes a lot of what we're in right now. For example, relationships and the way God designed family to work gets crumbled. Here's how he describes how life used to be in a brave new world before we brought in this utopian society. So back then, here's what we had. Family, monogamy, and romance. Everywhere there was exclusiveness. And everywhere there was a focusing of interest, a narrow channeling of your impulse and energy. What's that? That's a restricted yes. There was marriage. All that passion inside you was not a no, it was a channel it here. Well, what's the new offer in a brave new world? We'll call it 2023 America. Here's the statement. But now, everyone belongs to everyone else. There is no boundaries. There is no no's. It's a radical yes. And you're like, that kind of describes dating in this day and age, the internet, the pornography. It's just everything goes. Radical yes, 
radical no. What do we do in light of all that? Here's one of my things. Just go back to the basic Bible principles. None of the sexual ethics that this thing gives us are in the hard-to-read sections of the Bible, just so you know. Like, I'm reading through 2 Kings, and it's like, all right, I get it. There's a lot of bad kings, and this guy did evil, and this guy. It's like hard to get through. Leviticus, it's like, I'm done. Most of the sexual ethic that we hold as Christians is in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where any kid could pick that up and understand what's happening. And then it's reaffirmed in the New Testament. So don't overlook a basic love of the simplicity that Scripture offers, especially in the area of sexual ethics. So go back to the basics. But here's a few things I want to offer, just as each of these, I want to offer a practice to deal with getting out of the Babylon and its sexual immorality. Here's the first one, and it's going to, again, be basic. 1 John 1.9 says this, If you confess your sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive you of all sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So part of what makes the sexual discussion so hard is culture is confusing. I get that. But also, all of us walk in here with baggage and chapters in our story that we wish we could take out. And only Jesus offers an option where he says, I'm not going to take it out, but I'm going to cleanse all this and redeem all this. How? If you confess. So now is not the space to confess your sins in a public co-ed setting. But there are certain settings, groups in your life where you can confess with your sins, and he is faithful and just. So Christian, don't overcomplicate. Confess, confess, confess. And here's the other one, and this one I came by on accident, fasting. So I have four sons, most of you know that. They're all getting older, you all know that. (laughs) Which means they're heading into all the adult discussions. And I remember years ago, I was looking ahead kind of just through the portal of time thinking, okay, this talk's coming, this talk's coming, this discussion, this discussion. And I was like, how am I going to relate? I know what to say. I know what the truth is. I know the convictions I want. But how can I kind of get in their world and relate to what they're going to have to walk through? Meaning, your body's going to want all this. Your mind's going to want all this. And no, for now. You guys are all tracking with me. How can I relate to that? And I had to, with full just embarrassment, say, I don't ever say no to anything. And I'm not that rich of a man. I'm not that powerful of a man. But whatever food I want, I can get it. Whatever thing, whatever show, like, we have access. We live more like kings than any peasants that ever existed in all of time. So I had to say, how can I relate? I'm going to start fasting as a way to say no to something good for now, for something greater later. Confess and fast and come out of Babylon. Here's the second one. Come out of her misuse of power. Where do I see that? Verse 3 again. First part was all the nations drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Middle part of verse 3 in chapter 8. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Now he's talking to the kings of the earth for sure. But he's also talking to just power in general. And we live in a world where we can say, ah, this doesn't really apply to me. This is a Biden thing and a Congress thing and a Supreme Court thing and a China thing and a Russia thing. And, but the reality is here's the truth of all of us. We all have power or influence over something, someone, some group, some space on this earth that God has given us. We have power. The question is, how am I using the power that God has given me? For me and my vocation, it's as a church leader. It's as a pastor. 
God has, by his spirit, given me authority and the elders of this church authority over us. I can't run away from that, but I got to read this and say, people tend to misuse power when they go by Babylon's rules. And here's how I think it works out. I've tried to simplify it as easy as I can. Here's the flow of misuse of power. First up, you crave it. I just want power. That's what I want. Number one fear of Americans right now, based off a lot of different polls. It was shocking to me. Political corruption amongst our leaders. It's like, uh, so either guy that gets in or girl that gets in, there's like this sense of like, I don't trust that. So we live in this world like, well, then what do you do when you don't have control and power? Do you find other little subways to be in control of something so that you feel better about not having control over this? But you, we all crave to be in control. Maybe you're like my wife and you vacuum the house when you realize there's no controlling these four boys, but I can control the cleanliness of this rug right here. Done. We crave it. Second thing, we misuse it. We take it, the kings of the earth. I mean, the whole book of Revelation is just blasting the leadership of the modern day. And then you read it and you're like, yeah, it's not much has changed. And then the third thing is this, you hold on to it. You hoard it. In the Roman Empire, it was through nepotism. You just pass it on to your son. Or if you didn't like your son, you kill your son and you hold on. Like, but we all just hold, we want to be in control. I was talking to one lady before the first service about this political reality. She's like, yeah, but what are we supposed to do with it? Aren't you afraid a little bit? I'm like, yeah, I don't trust a lot of what's going on. Well, what do you, I said, that's not the issue. It's what you do when you face these moments of fear. Do you pursue control or do you lean into faith and trusting Jesus? to be the right king. Here's the way that I think the kingdom of Jesus would have us go through this. Instead of craving it, we submit to it. And I just fully admit, like, I mean, I'm going to give you a practice here in a second that convicts me a lot. I wish I wouldn't have done it, but it's too late now. Submit. Like, Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and stature with man and with God. How did he grow in that way? Part of it, a big part of it, is Jesus, the holy and divine God of creation, the King of Israel, placed himself in a human body and submitted to human fallen leadership. In his home, like Mary's over here trying to figure out parenting. All right, um, how do I get this kid to sleep? How do I get this kid to stop crying? This, uh, these boys keep fighting. Okay, where's the chapter? And Jesus, the perfect one, is over here watching his mother fumble through parenting. And he never once usurped her power. He submitted. And then he goes to synagogue. And this rabbi, fumbling through, saying wrong stuff. And he submits himself to leadership. And then he submits himself to the Roman government that killed him. You say, well, that's who we want to be is Jesus. Part of how it's going to happen is submission and learning how to submit. Here's the next thing is once we are given power, we steward it. William Wallace, Braveheart, greatest movie of all time. There's a great line in there. It's my favorite line. One of the people say, I heard you've been given the rank of king. And William Wallace says, I've been given nothing. God makes men who they are. It's a way to say, don't put that on me. God is the one in control of this, and he's given me whatever he's given me. In all of our little circles of influence, God has given you 
to steward well. And then he gives all these parables in the book of Matthew and Luke about what's going to happen at the end of all days. A lot of it has to do with God gathering up and saying, how did you do with what I gave you? Did you steward it well or did you misuse it? And then finally, here's the last thing, just pass it on. That's discipleship. That's parenting. The best parents in the world play the long game. And they know I get to be in control of this kid for about 16 to 18-ish years. And then they're gone. I'm passing on. I'm empowering them. Discipleship is passing on to the next generation. Jesus, after he leaves his mother's house, like he, then he goes around with 12 disciples. And one of the craziest things, and then he sends out the disciples to do the work that he could have done a lot better. But why? Because Christianity is about giving yourself away, not hoarding that which is God and God's own. Empower others. So what is the practice I put in for this one? I call it a submission audit. Like, if you were to sit down with yourself and think, where in my life do I actually submit? Not just in word, but from a heart level, a mind level, I submit. And just know, if you're waiting for the perfect one to submit to, he's already come, and they killed him. In your marriage, in your work, like, I think back to when I was an early Christian and I used to be a public school teacher. I was such a turd. And all of it could be summed up in this. I would not submit. I saw the department chair and I thought, that guy's a clown. That principal, never. And I just am embarrassed. Like, I, if I was sitting in this church service, I'd be like, well, there's no one worthy to submit to. Well, Jesus would say, I think you're going to grow a lot more by doing that which all of us don't want to do, and that's submitting in spaces to people. No one's perfect, and we're called to submit. Here's what submission is. We give this in premarital all the time. It doesn't mean you don't have to shut up, and you, can't, you can speak your mind. Hey, boss, I think this. Hey, spouse, what about this? I think this is the way. And then after everything's been laid out on the table, and you say, this is the way I want to go, and that person or that leadership says, uh, this is the way we're going, and you say, I will submit, and you walk this direction. That's submission. Like, when's the last time that happened? For some of you, it's never happened in this church yet, but the day is coming where there's a fork in the road where you disagree with what we think, and we choose to submit, practice submission. Otherwise, you're staying in Babylon with the nations who misuse power. Here's the third one. It's the easiest one to preach because this is America on display, is run from her relentless consumerism. The end of verse 3 says, And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And the most detailed section of Revelation that I think is not symbolic, but just actually describing what is on the earth at the present time for these readers happens in this. So go to Revelation 18, verse 9. And look at how Rome is described. And it's a little embarrassing because it's basically describing the world we live in with endless excess, Amazon Prime. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning, Babylon's folly. They will stand far off in the fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants... So that would just be workers in the economy of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore 
cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. One commentary I read spent like 40 pages describing. Just so you know, this is like a vivid description of the economy of Rome. Every single one of the things existed in modern-day Rome at the time. And they were all imported. Ivory from India. All this stuff is like Rome's way to just say, look at us, look how great we are. And then we read it here in 2023 and we think, I don't know if this applies to like our situation. I don't know if we have access to this. Yes. Like, let's look, I'm embarrassed. There's stuff in my Amazon cart right now waiting for me to hit send. How do we get out of Babylon's endless, relentless consumerism? Just acknowledge that's what it is. But here, again, just a few things. Some of these might be applicable. A few of them will be enjoyable, but that's not the point. Here's the first one. Flatten your roof. What I mean by that, Tom Schrader founded Redemption Church. He was a commercial real estate agent. God saved him in a mighty way. He comes in the church, and one of his veins where he lived and did a great job was teaching finances and budgeting, especially to younger families, which is a lot of our church congregation. And he would always say, pick your ceiling. There's an amount where you, if you had that, you're good. But here's just the reality, especially in a younger demographic church, we're all like on the upswing of life. And you say, well, what's my ceiling? I don't know. It's over there, though. How far over there? I don't know. How much more do you need? More. How much more? More than that. Pick your ceiling. And former math teacher, current pastor, you're not talking to someone who like, has a blank checkbook who can just say, <laughs> talking to a normal person like you who still thinks, I want a little higher ceiling than I currently have. Especially, gosh, groceries, good night. I saw a great TikTok about grocery prices. I'll send it to you if you want. <laughs> but here's, what, here's, here's where I get semi-frustrated in a pastoral and I think good sense. There's all these areas of discipleship that people can talk about that kind of stay up in the clouds. Their feelings, their thoughts, with Jesus and the pursuit of Jesus and passion. And it's like all this stuff that I can't quantify any of that. And you can't really quantify any of that. So let's talk, let's bring it down to earth. What's something we can quantify, God? What are you gonna know? Yeah, money. Let's talk about your money. I don't want to talk about that. Part of it is because it quantifies that which you can say with your mouth and not really follow with any sort of real follow-through and heart love. So talk about money. I'm not saying, again, just like the sex talk, you don't have it in unhealthy spaces, but you gotta have it, especially a church like ours. All of us are competing for the next thing. And then this person gets this. Well, that guy got a Tesla, and they just had their third kid. And da, 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 da. Like, I, just, I know how this game works. I've been in church since I was 18, and so I've been in the young family space of Christianity. And it's like Babylon feeling more than we want to admit. Here's the second thing. Pick a budget. Why are you misusing your money? Well, as Ramsey says, you're not telling where to go. Again, we have people that can help, but it takes the humility to ask. And the third thing, give it away. Your other option is to hoard it. How much do you give? 
our church statement, we don't have a statement. We just say each Christian must determine in their heart what they're going to give. For our family, 10% seems to be a good baseline. We start with that, and we work around that each year. But that's how you come out of Babylon's use and misuse of money. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. But here's your option if you stay in Babylon. Verse 14 through 17 says this about the merchants, the bread and butter of the Roman economy, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you, and all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, and they'll never be found again. This is describing economy. Books, cars, houses. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. So the city is burning all their stuff, and they're watching it, and they're just weeping. Not good tears. Tears that they built their life on the wrong foundation. Verse 16, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters, basic men, seafaring men, basic plumbers, and this isn't re restricted, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off, and they all wept. That's the end of Babylon in terms of its economy. That's what we have. So here's what, when I think about Scrooge, he sees the future, and he says, gosh, I don't want that future. A lot of Christianity is painted like, well, just don't do that. Don't have sex. Don't spend your money bad, and don't do all those things. No, 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 no. But Christianity has a beautiful image that we can long for. And Revelation 19 is starting to turn the page to the end of the book to give us a picture of the end of all things. And I want to read it together and close out our time. Revelation 19, verse 5 through 8. Rather than just thinking of leaving Babylon as loss, what do we have to gain as we come out of Babylon? Let's read it together. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then what I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. If you're not a Christian in this room, I don't know what version of Christianity you've been sold. A lot of it is lame, unless you open up the Bible. What we're waiting for as Christians is a wedding feast, a party with the perfect one, Jesus Christ, in us dirty, soiled, other spouse here on earth who has been made clean simply by the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. It's a little feast now waiting for the ultimate feast, which is described as this, a wedding. Where's the first wedding? It's in the very beginning of the book. It's God's original creation, Genesis 1 and 2. He creates night and day. He creates land and seas. He creates skies and earth. And whenever I give a wedding, this is one of the talks I give. And I say, what is marriage all about? And some people shout out wrong answer, especially your drunk uncle. He says, oh, it's about... Fred, not now. Marriage is about this, according to the scripture. It's about oneness. Just walk through the creational account. Here's the, he creates night and day. There's a morning sunrise. That's God's doing. He creates land and sea. The beach, that's God's doing. Those of you who have, can afford that vacation, who, who do you give credit to? That's God's doing. 
And he creates skies and land. Who did that? God did that. That's all in the creational account. And then his culmination, his, his final piece in his artistic rendering is this, a man and a woman, and the two shall leave their father and mother and become one. And that's like a tiny preview to the ultimate reality of the end where there's a wedding coming between Jesus and his bride, the church. And he sees us in all our impurity, and he covers us with the blood of his cross. And we have intimacy with him forever pleasure with him forever, and complete, this is what we're longing for, affirmation forever, where we think we're not enough, there's too much guilt, fear, and shame, and he says, welcome. That's what we're longing for. So when John paints this picture and tells us to come out of Babylon, he's not saying come out and just stand in this neutral space. He's like, something better is here. There is a wedding coming. And throughout all Revelation, the word blessed is used periodically, and it's used in this section, and I think it's right on point. Revelation 19.9, this is how it ends. This is what the angel says to cap off this section. Write this, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to him, these are the true words of God. Church, blessed are we who are invited to the marriage supper between us and Jesus Christ, the perfect one. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we just covered a lot. I just pray your spirit would move, that the things that need to be heard, the things that need to be sat with, the things that need to be talked through and assessed, that your spirit would start the discussion, lead the discussion. Your spirit would prompt the change, work through the change, and complete the change. But I pray we would never be hearers of the word and not doers. So help us to hear and do that which your spirit wants us to do. God, thank you for this book, which has been a lot. But it's always filled with beautiful pictures of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have Jesus as our king and the lamb who was slain. Father, be with us as we gather for the Lord's Supper now. Amen. Amen.